from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Hey, it's Dave Farron from Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 10th. Today, a battle between crayfish and coal mines. Coming up with a plan for a catastrophic asteroid strike and the weird psychology behind the baby on board sticker. Okay, so could you just start for the purposes of just uh, telling me your name and and where you're from and how long you've lived in this area? Uh, my name is Donna Brannan. I'm from Lenore, West Virginia. I've lived here for the last 47 years. Donna Branham is an incredibly feisty, almost lifelong resident of Mingo County, West Virginia, who's in her mid-60s. She is someone who grew up, as she says, atop a coal tipple. So I knew all about the coal dust and stuff. I just thought everybody had it until I got out of Mingo County in West Virginia. She grew up right amid a mining operation in Mingo County. My dad worked at the tipple, and whenever he retired, they had closed the mines down. But then they came back to do, in the 70s, it was called strip mining. It's the same thing as mountaintop removal now. Uh, And they just completely disrupted everybody's life in that community. Coal dust permeated everything. It was in the refrigerator. She thought that that was the way that people lived. In the refrigerator? Yeah, well, you know, in other words, it would settle on the food in the refrigerator at times, and you'd have to wipe it off. Who are you and what do you do? My name is Juliette Eilprin. I'm the senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post. Juliette met Donna Branham while reporting the story in West Virginia. Juliette wanted to look at coal mining and the push and pull between federal environmental regulations and the Trump administration. That conflict is also playing out between neighbors. Some people, like Donna, want to see an end to coal mining, and others say that it's their only way to get by. They started doing strip mining in the 1970s, and it ended up polluting her parents' water, the well near their home. They uh, sunk the well. They contaminated it three times. They had it redone. They got cracks in their house. The roof leaked. The chimney pulled away from the house like a foot. It was really dangerous for them to stay there, and they had no water. They would bring them in water to use. By that time, I was already away from home. I'd married and didn't live at home, but I'd go back and see them. And one evening, I went up there, and they brought this, what they call the water buffaloes. Are you familiar with them? No. It's what they put the, a big plastic tank they set outside for you to use for water. Okay. Since they sunk your well. And I went out there and, and looked at it, and I could see all these little bugs in that. And I went back in. I said, Mother, y'all can't drink that water. Well, they said it was pretty safe. I said, they lie. <laughs> so I had it tested, and it was awful. She was dealing with seeing her home personally affected by this mining operation. And ultimately, the blasting triggered a, a heart attack from her father. They sold out their land to the to the coal company, and they moved. And her her mother lived to regret having to leave her home. She talked about it as she was dying and Donna was holding her hand. And so it really was a seminal experience in Donna's life that shaped her view of what strip mining specifically can do to a community. 
you you think you're safe somewhere, but you're not. And for the past 25 years, I have been protesting and being active, trying to help keep the environment, the community clean, to make sure people have decent, uh, clean water to drink, that the homes aren't damaged, that we're not looking down at like second grade citizens. Um, I've went to a lot of rallies and, and I've spoke at quite a few places. And I have been told myself that we really don't matter here because the coal is needed so bad. Who said that to you? Um, it was someone with the Coal Association at Charleston. I was down there one day and I was trying to show them some uh, water that some people had brought in that day. And uh, they wouldn't even look at it. And uh, I told him, I said, he said, well, I don't know where you got that from. I said, well, come down with me. You know, we'll just run around the spigot and show it to you. And he said, you are indispensable that way because we need to call. Why did the Twin Branch Mine stop blasting a couple years ago? The company has not returned my phone calls, so it's a little difficult to determine the exact reason. There could be a number of reasons, economic reasons, but certainly there was an issue with permitting. What was happening to this mine and others around it is that there had been uh, two crayfish species. These are small crustaceans that are a few inches long, look like little lobsters, that are in the, the rivers and creeks there. And because in 2016, the Interior Department listed them under the endangered species list and identified coal mining as one of the biggest threats that they faced. This triggers a process where the federal government is obligated to enact protections for these species. And as a result, there was a pause on some of the permits that many operations in this part of West Virginia could get. So because there was a concern that the that the coal mining could affect these crayfish that that just stopped this this mine from from being able to continue there could be a number of reasons why the mine didn't continue so i i can't say definitively but there's no question and i've talked to for example one of the top officials at the west virginia coal association that what happened was that because there had to be some sort of guidance from the interior department about how to structure permits for these operations to to continue, that that was impeding operations. And one thing that's important to understand is that coal mines, again, particularly in, in this part of the country and the way they operate, is they start mining an area, they have a permit for that area, and then they need to move because they've exhausted the coal in a specific area. And so when they need to move, they need another permit. And so it's not the same thing as, for example, your operation gets permitted and it goes on for 15 years. It's, it's constantly applying for different permits to get the coal from different parts of, of, of even the area where you might have the right to mine there. But then... It reopened. Yes, there was a notice in the paper that was published in March, and basically in the second half of, of March, they started blasting again. And why were they able to start back operations? It really stems in part from a Trump administration initiative where you had a policy that was issued by a top official in the Interior Department who's since left but who was the energy counselor, which really eased the way for mining operations in West Virginia to get permits 
even if there was some level of concern that the crayfish that had been listed under the Endangered Species Act were in the area. In some ways, it seems kind of ironic that the thing that had at least for a while stopped this coal company from continuing to mine was these crayfish, even though, you know, in Donna's case and for other people in the area, like, it's really affected their lives, you know, destroyed their their home. And it's funny that it all comes down to these crayfish and making sure that you're protecting them. I think part of it is obviously a reflection on the fact that we have these laws dating back to the 1970s that really put in some pretty stringent protections. And, you know, the Endangered Species Act is this law that tons of people love to hate. They see it as really imposing these requirements that are unacceptable for business operations. But the point of that law is to prevent species from being wiped out and particularly from the federal government from approving activities that it knows could drive a species extinct. And so it happens to be an incredibly strong tool when you are trying to block something and you can make a decent case that there's a species at risk. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things is, you know, you raise this good question of, you know, how there are these impacts on the on this community. And it's one of the reasons that I actually think Donna is so central to this story, which is the idea that there, there are many people who are being affected by what's going on. I'll never forget our first payday. We thought we were rich. Daddy laid it out on the table. I was these little... Mm-hmm. sidekick, you know. Mm-hmm. I was the oldest. And I guess it was like $500 or something. I thought it was a million dollars. I said, Daddy, we're rich. You know. He said, yeah, Nance, we're rich. <laughs> but you know, you didn't you didn't have nothing then. I thank God where I come from. You know. God's been good to me. I talk to people with a range of perspectives. I'm Nancy Hatfield from uh, Gilbert, West Virginia. Pollution's real. You know, it's real. But what can we do about it? We have to eat. You know, I, I believe in pollution, but we got to eat. We don't, we, we have to here, you know. We don't have a whole lot here. And God's been good to us, you know. And so I think that one of the reasons why you don't see the human impact as being as critical in these debates sometimes is that the very people who are closest to what's going on are people who have an economic stake in that activity. Interesting. So that even if coal mining might threaten your house, it might also give you or your family a job. And so there's there's a trade-off. What would we do? Everybody can't pack up and leave. They can't go buy another house, another car. you got to have money to leave, you know? A lot of people don't have that kind of money. It's pitiful, you know? And they work hard. They work like dogs in these mines. It's not easy. These are trade-offs that people make all the time. And one of the interesting things is that, in theory, with the Endangered Species Act, you're not allowed to trade off the extinction of a species. That that it's, it's an interesting test because there is a red line that is not supposed to be crossed. And sometimes... Again, you might see that it is crossed, but the idea of the law is that there is a point where you can't make a compromise. So you can't compromise on on crayfish. Right. Whereas to some extent in terms of human health impacts or in terms of, you know, the foundation of your house, 
There, there are compromises that can be, and they're also it's they're to some extent they're, they're fixable. You know, she had issues with her foundation and with her home, and ultimately, the coal company had to pay to repair her home. So, you know, to some extent, you can you can address some of those issues in a way that it's it's hard once a species is gone, it doesn't come back. So, what did what did Donna decide to do when she heard that the that Twin Branch was going to restart operations and that basically they were allowed to bypass this this concern about about the the crayfish in the area. Really her main option is speaking out. There there there's not anything else that for example she herself is planning to do right now. There are other times for example she's given testimony in lawsuits, but at this point what she was really doing is just trying to sound the alarm for what she felt was an action that was affecting her community and shouldn't be going on. And do you think that's going to work? I think one of the real questions is there will be a legal fight about this issue. There's particularly a group called the Center for Biological Diversity, which already is involved in litigation with the Interior Department over these crayfish species. And there's no question that they will seek to, to the extent that they can, overturn this policy. Now, there's, um, on the other hand, the administration is very committed to ensuring that coal mining goes forward. This is something that's a priority of the president specifically. He talks about it in the context of West Virginia. He talks about it when he visits that state. The interior secretary, who was just confirmed, David Bernhardt, also sees this as a priority. So, it is not a policy that the administration will abandon willingly. Juliet Eilprin is a senior national affairs correspondent for The Post. Results from the Reconnaissance Mission 1 have revealed that asteroid 2019 PDC is headed for certain impact near Denver, Colorado. Before you freak out, 2019 PDC is fake. It does not exist. It's not a real asteroid. This is something they do at every single planetary defense conference is they play out a scenario of what if an asteroid was headed for Earth? What would we do? I'm Sarah Kaplan. I'm a science reporter at The Post. Last week, Sarah spent some time with a group of planetary scientists, engineers, and disaster response experts in Maryland. And their goal was to come up with a plan for what to do if a major asteroid threatens Earth. This is basically the biggest meeting in the world to discuss gigantic cosmic threats to the planet. To be clear, the odds of an asteroid actually hitting Earth are small. But it is possible. Yeah, and actually, there was briefly a moment where we thought it might happen. Fifteen years ago, scientists detected this 1,000-foot-wide asteroid that they called Apophis, and the early calculations suggested that it actually had a decent chance of colliding with Earth on Friday, April 13th, <laughs> 2029, <laughs> oh, which would have been a very unlucky day. 
Ultimately, scientists figured out that Apophis will miss us by about 20,000 miles. But in space terms, that's relatively close. So it's something that we as a planet might actually need to have figured out. And so far, scientists have come up with two options for how to deal with an asteroid on track to hit Earth. There's this one technique called the kinetic impactor, where basically you smash the asteroid with a bunch of spacecraft and slow it down just enough that when its orbit crosses Earth's orbit, it'll miss us. The other option is the standoff nuclear detonation, which sounds really Bruce Willis-y, but it is also <laughs> pretty sophisticated. Basically, what you do is you send a nuclear device into space and deploy it next to the asteroid. And that blasts a little bit of material off the asteroid's surface, and the recoil from that is enough to either slow the asteroid down a bit, or speed it up. Though I feel like the idea of sending a nuclear bomb into space to hit this asteroid that's flying toward us is fraught with opportunity to go wrong. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's what they saw in this scenario. So the scientists who assembled at the conference pretended to discuss their options. And ultimately, they decided that there was no way the world was going to come to agreement on the nuclear device. Who was going to provide it? Who would have control of the spacecraft? What happens if the rocket explodes on the launch pad with the nuclear device on top of it? It's very, very scary concept. And so the outcome of this scenario was that, like, they don't think the world could come to an agreement on it, which probably reflects reality. So what happens next in the simulation? The scientists have identified that, yes, the asteroid is going to hit Earth, and the place it's going to hit is Denver. And they have this, like, really, really scary visualization of what would happen. The estimated energy of the impact ranges from 150 to 500 megatons. So we can now predict the impact location really accurately. And this is what the uncertainty looks like right over Denver. Basically, the entire city of Denver would be destroyed. There would be the sort of unsurvivable area where the blast is so powerful and so hot that, like, you know, buildings immediately light on fire, cars vaporize. That area will cover miles and miles of land. And in that scenario, what can anyone do about it? So in, in this scenario, they've decided that they're going to try the kinetic impactor model. They've launched this fleet of six spacecraft to try to strike the asteroid um, and slow it down just enough that it will miss Earth. And so they have to wait until the next day to see how successful they are. And how did the kinetic impactor go? Not too great. It was sort of successful. So in this scenario, they say that because of the haste with which the spacecraft had to be built, three of them never made it to the asteroid, which is realistic. You know, the, usually the lead time on building and developing a mission like this is five years or 10 years. And in this scenario, scientists would have to pull it off in like one or two years. The three that do survive, they make it to the asteroid and they do succeed in deflecting it. But unfortunately, the asteroid is a rubble pile, and it's not this, like, perfect circle. It actually looks kind of like a peanut. And one of the kinetic impactors accidentally fragmented the asteroid and caused a small piece of the peanut to continue on course to Earth. 
So, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So, no, that's, like, when things got really spicy. It's, like, on the one hand, Denver is safe, but on the other hand, there's this other fragment, and we don't know where it's going to go, and we don't really know how big it is. And now they have to scramble to come up with what are we going to do about this fragment? <laughs> and so what do they do? So um, I feel like there should be the the movie version of this comes in somewhere where you just like send a bunch of astronauts out to like go deal with the asteroid or something. Yeah, like that. I think Steven Spielberg might be disappointed to learn that like there is no scenario of asteroid deflection in which you actually send a person to the asteroid. It's um, extremely disappointing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, Bruce Willis doesn't have to like sacrifice himself to save humanity. So fast forward to the next day. This is what the impact footprint looks like for the fragment uh, with 10 days to go. It's very localized. It's about six kilometers across, so four miles, something like that. Um, and it's lower Manhattan, as it turns out. And so the asteroid is going to hit New York and basically mostly demolish Manhattan and cause damage, you know, from the eastern part of New Jersey all the way out through Long Island. And so what happens then in this scenario? There's nothing to do except evacuate New York City. I mean, the last option you have when an asteroid is headed for you is get out of the way. So the other thing we need to consider is that we've got the whole rest of Long Island that's not going to be able to get back into the mainland. So there's about 10 million people here that are going to be impacted by this. FEMA, are you ready? A manager for FEMA who was at the scenario said there actually is an evacuation plan for New York. He was like, I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you it exists. So not necessarily in the event of an asteroid impact, but you could imagine other scenarios for which New York would have to be evacuated. In the end, what happens when a 60-meter asteroid hits New York is pretty scary. <laughs> it basically vaporizes the skyscrapers. It sends fire tornadoes ripping through the region. And 10 million people, which is the number of people who need to be evacuated, is more than any Americans have ever been evacuated before. Well, so let me ask you this. After watching how this whole process played out, did that make you feel more or less confident that if something like this were to happen, we would actually have a plan in place to deal with it? So I think I was surprised by how much the scientists have thought about all these things about, you know, if you were trying to deflect an asteroid, where in its orbit is the most effective place to do that? A lot of the scientists, the asteroid researchers who think about this every day, they've actually thought about it quite a bit. On the other hand, I feel like sort of political leaders and like the global community and sort of that aspect of the equation, I have questions. <laughs> and you look at, I mean, you look at our response to natural disasters that do happen, right? And that happen with increasing regularity, especially with climate change. I mean, we're seeing more extreme weather. We're seeing more catastrophic hurricanes, more deadly wildfires. And it is really testing the capacity of our governments and our emergency response agencies. And climate change is kind of the asteroid that is headed for Earth. And you look at Earth's response and, you know, a lot of people would say we're not doing too hot. But I, I will say that there are things that scare me way more than an asteroid. <laughs> and those things are much more likely to happen. <laughs> yeah, those things are much more. I mean, they're already happening, right? Like climate change is already happening. Antibiotic resistance is already happening. But what I think that the value of a scenario like this is it gives us a framework for thinking about these really, really big problems that need a global response. And 
What is it going to take to muster that response? And hopefully we will never be in the position of having to fend off a killer asteroid. But like there are other huge problems that do require an international response from everyone on Earth. And I don't think we've quite figured out how to tackle those. Sarah Kaplan is a science reporter at The Post. And now, one more thing. The baby on board sticker. I'm Caitlin Gibson. I'm a feature writer, and I focus on stories about parenting, youth culture, and families. I'm a mom to a 14-month-old baby, and last year when we were on our way to her very first pediatrician appointment, we had a near-miss with a big SUV. Everyone was totally fine, but of course it completely freaked me out. And I found that my first panic reflex was to buy the baby on board decal. The more Caitlin thought about this reaction, the weirder it seemed. What does this actually accomplish? Uh, How do people respond to it? Is this just something that I'm doing to make me feel like there's a, a way for me to protect her when really I can't? And I just got curious about what drives our impulse to buy these things and started digging into it a little bit. It was very funny to hear the vast range and depth of reactions to these decals. You know, some people are very protective of them and identify with them, and a lot of people are deeply irritated by them, offended by them, feel like it's a message of my baby's more important than anybody else, and everything in between. After talking to a lot of parents about this, what I really came to understand is it's fundamentally a sign of our fear and our sense of vulnerability. So when you see it, you know, it's on board, possibly baby, on board, definitely adult who has recently become acquainted with the terrifying fragility of human existence. Caitlin Gibson is a feature writer for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The Post Director of Audio is Just Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.